this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage... All the way to the, we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Music, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Eamon Bell, the host of the channel. This week, I'm very pleased to be joined by Professor Gassio Ozunian, author of Stereophonica, Sound and Space in Science, Technology and the Arts, which was just published by MIT Press in February 2021. The relationship between sound and space has gradually become central to both creative practices in music and sound art, as well as to contemporary scholarship on sound more generally. During the 20th century, new disciplinary formations grappled with the spatial aspects of sound from spatial audio and sound installation to acoustic ecology and soundscape studies. As common as it is today to speak of the relative height of musical pitches or the sense of vocal space opened up by particular recording techniques, we did not always understand sound to be spatial. How did it become so? In Stereophonica, Uzunian examines a series of historical episodes from the advent of stereo technologies in the 19th century to visual representations of sonic environments today. This entry into sound studies and the history of technology deals with an array of historical, technical, instrumental, and artistic cases in the long history of spatial sound. The reward of following its broad purview is a rich web of connections that disclose sound and listening as a long fruitful site, not only of aesthetics, but also of the ethics of space and place. Garcia Uzunian, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Um, before we start, I wonder if you could just briefly begin by telling us a little bit about yourself and um, how you came to write this book. Yes. Um, so my name is Gassi Uzunian. I'm an associate professor of music at the University of Oxford. And uh, before that, I was working in Belfast at the Sonic Arts Research Centre at Queen's University Belfast. Um, for a long time, I've been interested in this topic of sounds interconnections with space. When I was a PhD student at the University of California in San Diego, my dissertation was on the history of sound installation art. So artworks that are, you know, uh, comprised of sounds being installed usually in a gallery space, maybe an outdoor space, 
These are not necessarily, they're not normally considered musical works. They're works that don't necessarily have a beginning or ending. They have indeterminate, you know, durations sometimes, and often they're site specific and responding to um, uh, the conditions of a place. So I started when I was doing that research to become quite fascinated by, you know, what would a spatial analysis of music and sound entail? And as I was doing reading around this topic, I realized, you know, there's a lot of kind of theoretical writing on sound and space. We have many theories, for example, concepts of things like acoustic communities, acoustic territories, soundscapes. Um, but where do those ideas come from? And uh, so I wanted with this book to really not do necessarily a theoretical study or a philosophical study, but um, although hopefully it has a you know bit of a philosophical dimension to it, um, but uh, to really probe the history of these ideas. Where did these ideas come from? How did they evolve? Who were the people involved in you know um, making these shifts happen? Sometimes they're artists, sometimes they're technologists, sometimes they're scientists and engineers. And what are those interconnections between those different worlds? We often think about these issues within a kind of certain bubble, music, sound studies, engineering, sometimes, you know, uh, psychology. So I wanted to cut across those disciplines and also look at a kind of broad range, uh, a wide uh, scope in terms of time. So it's covering about 150 years of history. Yeah, and, and it's it's a scope, I suppose, that's kind of um, brought together by uh, an emphasis, yeah, as you said, less on sort of broader philosophical arcs, but more on the kind of individual things or people that institute a particular set of ideas about sound and space. Mm. Um, and in the title of the book, the, the pre-call on title is Stereophonica. So already the, the use of this word um, suggests that you, this goal of this book is, is not just to kind of rehearse the um, history of stereo sound, which is to say kind of two-channel audio um, and to go beyond that a little bit. So could you, speaking to the the first chapter in the book, the introduction, could you tell our listeners a little bit more about this concept of stereophonica and some of the benefits that you found in thinking through this kind of 150-year history of sound and space using particularly um, this notion? Absolutely. So, um, you know, as I said, I got into this field of study myself through music and looking at musical works that were considered spatial. So for example, multi-channel electroacoustic works, um, things that are projected over multiple loudspeakers. Uh, one could think of, for example, Poem Electronique by Edgar Varese, which was projected over more than 400 loudspeakers in the Philips Pavilion at the 1958 World's Fair in Brussels. So those kinds of, you know, musical works have been theorized as spatial music, but actually sound is spatial and, you know, uh, whether or not it's being projected through a multi-speaker uh, array or not. So I wanted to, you know, kind of put a bit of pressure on that idea of stereo only having to do with let's say two-channel or multi-channel sound. And I wanted to consider a much broader category of phenomena that could be um, considered, engaged with, analyzed through this uh, 
lens of space, so a spatial analysis. So in that broad category of stereophonica, that's the term that I use um, to denote that, I'm including many, uh, pretty much every kind of sonic phenomenon. Um, So noise maps, sound maps, soundscape compositions, that kind of more classical electroacoustic spatial music, sound installation art. Um, so yeah, the, the idea behind that term is really to say we can consider really any kind of musical or sonic phenomena through that lens of space. And what will that then do to the ways in which we analyze these phenomena? Sorry, yes. And uh, just, just to speak to the second part of your question, you know, what are some of the benefits that I found in thinking through the long history of sound and space using that notion? Well, again, it's that it's this um, idea of spatial hearing and spatial analysis and spatial sound is not then just limited to these specific, you know, multi-channel sound reproducing and recording technologies. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's then opening up this interdisciplinary thing as well. If I'm doing a sound study in an urban context, you know, that is a, a clearly a spatial, um, it has a spatial imperative. You know, you can't study an urban sound environment without thinking about the spatial conditions, which then also are sonic uh, conditions, which are also social conditions, which are also political conditions. So that, again, that category of stereophonica then enables me to then cut across those historically quite entrenched disciplinary boundaries. Um, The purpose of my study is really to, you know, go in between these different disciplinary uh, silos and say, well, what can we, you know, do? Uh, How can we think about this phenomenon differently if we're thinking across those uh, interrelationships? Sure. And I think actually just this term gives us a good kind of link into the second chapter. I just wonder, could you briefly talk about the stereo of a stereophonica? Because actually one of the things that I learned reading this book was essentially that this um, technical term that I am familiar with as somebody who is kind of interested in audio technology as referring to kind of two or more channels is this kind of I kind of almost assume that the the Greek root or whatever had something to do with tunis, but it, it doesn't have anything to do with um, the number of channels at all. Could you speak a little bit about stereo just in that context? Yes, this word um, stereos, the Greek word, is more, I think, about dimensionality and spatiality and the um, something having dimension. And um, so that, that term stereo, uh, when applied to sound, stereophonic, was proposed by Alexander Graham Bell in 1879. Um, he was doing experiments after having, you know, been uh, an inventor of the telephone on the possibility of spatial hearing through the telephone. He wanted to know, um, you know, can you sense where sounds are coming from when you listen through the telephone or how far away sounds are when you listen through the telephone? So he did a series of um quite laborious experiments around that with different auditors in different rooms with different kinds of transmitters and receivers at different distances, uh, listening with their eyes closed or their eyes open, listening through one receiver, listening to through two receivers. And he said, you know, you can't uh, tell the distance and these different kind of spatial aspects of sound through telephonic audition, 
But, you know, it's clear that there is a different kind of sense of space of sound when you are using your two ears uh, to listen versus one. So that's that term um, stereo. He, he proposes it in an article on these experiments with telephonic listening. But then it also then um, it, it stems from these other kinds of uh, experiments as well, actually in the visual and optical domain. So one of the scientists who I point towards is Charles Wheatstone and his invention of the stereoscope. So that is a device through which you're looking at two images and uh as you look at them, it's, it becomes a singular three-dimensional image when you view them through the stereoscope. And this was a very popular, actually, form of image consumption, photographic image consumption in the 19th century. So he was, you know, thinking about and theorizing stereoscopic viewing. And then following from that, people were thinking about and theorizing stereoscopic listening, uh, stereophonic listening. Um, so kind of drawing sometimes on Charles Wheatstone's ideas, as well as his experimental methods, uh, as they were then starting to invent binaural two-eared or stereo two-channel apparatuses in the 19th century. Um, so yeah, I mean, if I can tell you about one of those um, apparatus. Sure, yeah. yeah. So there was... Um, well, well, one of the for, for me really interesting ones. There were there were there were apparatus that were invented in the course of scientific studies then on binaural audition when it started to become more of a accepted thing that you know audition historically had been studied really as a monaural phenomenon. Um, so uh, if you looked at texts in medicine and anatomy from the early modern period until the, let's say, early 19th century, they're really focusing on the phenomenon of listening with one ear alone, monaural audition. So it was really in towards the second half of the 19th century that scientists, psychologists, uh, were systematically studying the spatial aspects of hearing and this idea of binaural audition as a spatial phenomenon. So one of the scientists who is studying this is called Sylvanus P. Thompson, and he invents a device called the pseudophone, which is actually a derivative of another device of Charles Wheatstone's, which is called the pseudoscope. And what the pseudoscope did was it was creating is, uh, illusions in the visual field. So you could kind of um, reverse depth perception uh, visually and do these kind of, uh, uh, you know, create these quite spectacular illusions uh, by looking through this uh, pseudoscope. But so then what Sylvanus Thompson did was he invented this um, almost kind of like a headphones with reflectors on them, which mm -hmm. was intended to do something similar in the oral domain. So uh, be able to flip that sense of where sounds are coming from, for example. So there were these kinds of experiments happening within scientific circles but then also there were in the 18th century, uh, in 19th century, around these this time, 1880s, early stereo broadcasting technologies that were producing this experience of stereo audition for mass audiences. And the first one was called the teatrophone, or in English, the theater phone. And um, what the teatrophone was, was 
It was invented by a French engineer called Clément Adair, and he was using the Bell telephone to reproduce this sense of stereophonic audition, so this kind of spatial sense of hearing, using telephone um, transmitters that he placed in an array at the foot of a stage, and then it would send those uh, through telephone wires to two telephone receivers that the listener would hold uh, by putting two to their ears. And so, you know, they're kind of already um, in immersed, let's say, in that sonic space because they're holding two receivers to their ears and they're hearing basically a kind of uh, stereo signal. And so uh, this was first demonstrated in Paris at the 1881 Paris Electrical Exhibition. And people went in into this room, which was carpeted and draped, so it was very hushed. And they put these two telephone receivers to their ears, and they heard these stereo transmissions of opera and theater. And later it was used for muse, um, as well as other kinds of um, musical and theatrical performances. Um, and they were, yeah, so they were listening to the stereo, the stereo signal, and people were then remarking on this phenomenon of audition that had never been experienced before, this binauricular audition, so something that sounded three-dimensional. Journalists were remarking on that, audiences were, were remarking on that. It sounded so realistic, uh, apparently, that people would even clap when they were in that, um, you know, space for a theatrophonic audition at the fair, um, you know, thinking that they were in the room in which the action was happening. It was also really interesting because this was the first experience for many people of acousmatic sound, so sound where you're not seeing where the sound source is. Um, this was before radio. It was a kind of pre-radio technology. And um, yeah, and and so for me, it's very interesting that people were, you know, uh, engaging with this kind of apparatus, which then become became kind of mass produced uh, in France, in Hungary, in England. It was marketed as the electrophone. Now, it wasn't necessarily affordable uh, for everybody, but you could subscribe, uh, for example, in France to theatrophonic transmissions um, broadcasts. And if you were able to afford one of these machines, you could listen at home or you could go to a public theatrophone machine put in your, you know, 10 cents or your centime and you could listen to it over the, uh, uh, almost like a phone booth and uh, listen to, let's say, a snippet of music or theater that way. Yeah, it's incredible in some ways how these things anticipate some of kind of the same cultural forms that keep coming back. I think the, the key word, both with reference to like these um laboratory equipment or the stereoscopes or the pseudophone is this notion of spectacle but also the sort of institutionalization of that spectacle in um the theatrophone demonstrations and we'll, we'll definitely pick that up um not in the next chapter but in uh, the one that immediately follows it um so if the kinds of technologies and techniques that um kind of figure in the chapter we've just discussed dealt with um empirical or kind of demonstrative research that's designed to assess how human beings could hear binocular, uh, but binaurally or, or through stereo listening. The third chapter, the next chapter, Powers of Hearing, examines how that binaural capacity was activated in rather kind of complex human technological systems and, and in a rather entirely different context in some ways from the entertainment um, context that we've just spoken about. And it's in the name of acoustic defense projects during the First World War. So the kind of new phenomenon of nighttime aerial bombardment meant that 
air defense strategies premised on being able to see the planes that uh, were being defended against uh, were useless. So the military turned to the hearing sense in an attempt to use human hearing to pinpoint the location of noisy warplanes by their acoustic traces. Your chapter is richly illustrated with photographs of the kind of sometimes quite bizarre looking field apparatus built for this purpose, but these contraptions only tell part of the story. Um, As you show in this chapter in connection with French, British, and American schemes for so-called acoustic defense, wartime listeners were disciplined as such. So sort of selection and ear training regimes set out to identify and curate a new kind of listening, one that was kind of addressed towards this um, new area of phenomenon. So could you explain how did the scientific and military research establishments kind of come together to deal with this new threat? And um, what kind of insights um, into our ability to localize sounds in space, that is to say, stereophonically, uh, did their sometimes kind of Byzantine experiments throw up? Thank you for summarizing that chapter so well, Eamon, and for your um, really excellent question. Um, to kind of bridge those two chapters from the 19th century experiments in psychology and these early stereo devices to what was happening during the First World War, there is an important, um, you know, shift which is happening in terms of this thinking around the spatial sense of audition. Something that I found very surprising was that one of the prevailing scientific views at the turn of the 20th century was um, that sound is not spatial or the sense of hearing is not spatial. I mean, some people were arguing against that, of course, um, and, and proving that through these empirical studies. But some people believed, you know, um, the ear did not have enough surface to reflect sound spatially. Some people believed that there was something inherent about sound itself uh, that could not be reflected or um, that that wasn't reflected in this kind of spatial, that it didn't uh, contain dimensionality, which, which of course, now we, we would find those kinds of ideas bizarre. But even the psychologist who most fervently argued that actually the space, uh, the sense of hearing is spatial, said it's nevertheless um, uh, subordinate to the visual uh, sense through which we see, you know, where objects are, and we're really kind of mostly locating objects in space by looking at them, mm-hmm. and so it's a subordinate kind of perceptual faculty. Now, this really then changed during the First World War, because you have um, this technological kind of aerial warfare um, on a you know mass scale for the first time and you all of a sudden have these airplanes which are going to bomb your cities uh, especially cities and if you don't know where they are you can't shoot them down and if they're hiding behind clouds or you know flying in cover of darkness at night well, then this problem becomes an urgent problem, the spatial sense of hearing. How can we then locate these objects that we can't see, but only through listening to them? And as you said, this led to urgent and uh, vast amounts of experimentation during the First World War, in which military um, scientists, people who became military scientists and people who had just been, you know, maybe physicists, astronomers, or other kinds of scientists before the First World War were recruited into this war effort. And this happened in every military. But I focus on the French, British, and American forces because they made really a lot of um, advances in this idea of the spatial sense of hearing, primarily in order to be able to locate airplanes 
during this period. So one of their um, devices, um, if I can describe one of them, it basically looks like a parabolic dish. So this was an invention of a French astronomer called René Bayot, and he had, prior to the war, been you know, doing astronomical studies at the observatory in Toulouse. And he actually thought about the Newtonian telescope and that concave lens and the convex lens. So he was experimenting with that, you know, and then focusing sound at the, you know, center of this parabolic dish and then listening to that and tracking the location of sound, you know, that way um, by focusing sound using the dish. Um, So, but that then became you know, a a small dish, then they had to make a larger dish in order to reflect the sounds of the Gotha airplanes that had quite low frequencies. And then there were not one, but two auditors who were controlling, um, you know, where that dish was pointing and sitting at it. And they were listening for the altitude and the azimuth. So, uh, you know, I describe that as a kind of alt azimuth form of listening. That was a kind of quite uh, successful, let's say, um, technology, but there were many also quite bizarre in some cases, uh, interesting uh, technologies invented around this time. And there was a lot of, as, as you said, uh, collaboration between militaries, between scientific instrument companies, between scientific institutions, um, and also across militaries. So, and part of this had to do with the training then of these this new class of auditor, who was the military auditor, the soldiers who were trained to then use these devices and listen in the field. Now, as you can imagine, listening to uh, try to locate airplanes is a kind of terrifying prospect because you're being attacked, you know, and, and you don't know where the plane is and you're using this contraption. So they were training people very systematically, you know, how to follow sound, uh, the source of sound. So they would, for example, get them to listen through a device, uh, listening to one source of sound that would be moving that one person was providing And then they would have to listen to the alt and the azimuth. Um, They would have to then listen to airplanes. So they were actually doing these kinds of ear training exercises every day. And they, uh, for the people who were actually good, who had a, who were determined to have a kind of good spatial sense of hearing. And they actually built these um, places where they were training these military auditors and they called them école d'écoute. And there were quite a few of these in France. Uh, So, um, generally not far from cities where they were also then, um, they, they were repositories as well for these sometimes massive technologies. Some of those uh, bios paraboloids were, were huge, as were some of these other inventions around this time. So those military auditors, they were listening then in this very kind of systematic way. And it was a new kind of, let's say, uh, listening, a new kind of audile technique, they were listening really in order for data collection. Okay. It's an almost a kind of machine listening done by humans. If, of course, if they could have done it with computers, they would have done it with computers. Um, but for me, that was a kind of interesting, you know, effect that the militaries are then starting to systematize these methods of audition in order, you know, to advance their project. Yeah, I agree entirely. That that's one of perhaps the most interesting takeaways for me from that chapter was exactly that um move to a kind of more data rational kind of listening, which um yeah, we could trace all the way through to something like um 
the music information retrieval community now where people are using algorithms, right, to try and determine um, objectively or sort of pseudo-objectively features, not spatial features, but sometimes things that have spatial correlates of um, the kind of the cultural record. And um, I think that, that as surprising as that conclusion might be, it's a kind of interesting testament to how if we are um, kind of more open to looking for these kinds of continuities between sort of pre-digital and post-digital technologies and looking more at the kinds of institutions and the kinds of listening practices on a kind of individual level, we start to see these kind of connections come up. And so, um, yeah, that for me was a very interesting kind of tangent with my own interests, but also just with this larger methodological point, which is to kind of follow the kind of activity of listening, no matter where it's instantiated. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, so, and that's absolutely right. Or I, 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 I think uh, what you've just said, Eamon, really resonates with me in that, you know, some of these technologies that are now embedded or encoded into, let's say, um, computer systems, they they were prefigured in these non-digital uh, listening methods. And the, the First World War is a really nice, I think, uh, example of that kind of prefiguration uh, within these, you know, let's say human systems that then become machi- machinic and in- embedded into code. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse, carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see, we could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Well, speaking of prefiguration, we probably this is a good time to move on to the next chapter. Uh, something that this lit off um, light bulbs in my mind was in kind of connection with contemporary or relatively recent interest in um, so-called ASMR recording technologies and, and the kind of this returning again to the spectacular now if, if the war was a kind of listening under duress and listening under a kind of intense pressure and a very kind of again data rational listening the kind of listening that's described in chapter four is a little more lighthearted but still had you know significant consequences for how sound was um, kind of processed and broadcast so in in chapter four um, we're kind of cutting pretty swiftly into the interwar period where um, new developments in sound recording put in place many of the kind of preconditions for more impressive, if we like, more public demonstrations of new techniques for recording sound. Um, so we've already established that the human sense of sound being embedded in space could be carefully studied and controlled through the use of uh, binaural or, or multi-channel uh, sound reproduction technologies. So when researchers at the Bell Telephone Laboratories in New York wanted to demonstrate these recent advancements in, in processing sound, they turned to spectacle kind of at a grand scale to help them make their point with rhetorical force. And their point was that stereo sound meant increased realism. Um, engineers and producers at, at Bell Telephone Labs or BTL embedded media technical demonstrations inside essentially theatrical performances held at expos and conferences. Um, most notably at the Chicago World's Fair in 1933, where a kind of uh, techno-utopian mood prevailed that seems with World War II to be kind of um, all all too naive. In any case, at these kinds of demonstrations, famous musical interpreters collaborated collaborated with equally well-renowned figures in acoustic research, pulling off feats of sound engineering that were experienced, as you argue, by hundreds of thousands of Americans and, and very widely reported in the press. 
Um, so could you tell our listeners about some of these uh, collaborations and spectacular demonstrations, um, a number of which, as kind of I alluded to at the start there, echo still relevant contemporary uh, both consumer and corporate visions for musical and sonic performance that's been mitigated by uh, broadcast and recording? Yes. Um, so this period for me was, uh, let's say, the interwar period, as you said. It, it's a really interesting, again, period in, of scientific experimentation and also artistic experimentation now that there were more advanced multi-channel recording and reproducing apparatuses. So um, one of the places in which this kind of work was happening was Bell Telephone Laboratories. And there were many actually different groups and scientists at BTL who were looking at the uh, reproduction of sound and stereo and multi-channel audio. Um, and the reason they were initially doing that uh, was for things like potential use in, let's say, cinema, um, but also because they really are, you know, they're scientists and engineers, and they want to improve, ultimately, the um, sound quality of telephonic transmissions and these other kinds of communications devices. But also, there's a clear artistic then impetus. What happens when you can produce music, not just sound, but music uh, through multiple channels? So these, some of those engineers, there's another thing I want to say about that, which is that some of them actually were directly also involved in sound location research for the U.S. military during the First World War. And Harvey Fletcher, he's a physicist who becomes then a really world-famous acoustician who's at Bell Telephone Laboratories. He's the head of the acoustical research section. He writes a very important book on speech and hearing. Um, and uh, he, he, during the First World War, was doing sound location uh, for submarines using microphones uh, underwater, using hydrophones. And then, um, and they were putting that onto a kind of dummy head. So again, using that binaural sense to locate sounds spatially. And then, and then they started experimenting with doing those kinds of things, but then in the musical and commercial domain. So one of the devices um, that they were using was a dummy head, which is, was called Oscar, which was a remarkably human-like uh, dummy head that, you know, looked like a, um, it, you know, it was a man with a, wearing a suit. And one of their, you know, demonstrations of Oscar took place and, and he had two microphones, one in each, one in the left ear, one in the right ear, or kind of just more really in his cheeks, but it was supposed to mimic that sense of human spatial hearing. So they demonstrated then Oscar at the 1933 Chicago World's Fair, um, where several hundred thousand people would go to one of the sites of the fair where, where Bell Telephone uh, Laboratories had their uh, display. And they would sit in rows of uh, seats where they would, again, hold two telephone receivers to their ears and watch the spectacle with Oscar, the dummy with microphonic ears, on a stage. It was called the Auditory Perspective Illusion or the Oscar Show. And there were then actors who were moving around Oscar and then creating these spatial sound effects. And people were, you know, startled. It was very entertaining. It was, again, a kind of experience of spatial sound that almost nobody had 
ever had. Maybe if you were lucky enough to have, you know, listened through the teatrophone, you would have had a bit of a sense of spatial hearing, but not like this. Um, and so these experiments kind of helped to popularize and potentially, eventually, you know, commercialize this as a new kind of audio product, uh, stereo sound. And then they were also collaborating with prominent artists, most notably the conductor Leopold Stokowski in the Philadelphia Orchestra. And so one of their uh, demonstrations was they invited all these scientists who were had gathered for a major scientific convention in Washington, D.C. to a large concert hall auditorium in D.C., and they invited them to a concert of the Philadelphia Orchestra. Now, when the concert started, people thought that there had been some kind of mistake because the curtain was still covering the entire front of the stage. But they could hear, uh, it was Bach's Toccata and Fugue, uh, they could hear uh, very clearly the music and also very clearly where apparently the different instruments were of the orchestra. And then they were very startled and amazed when the curtain was lifted and there was no orchestra there and only these three giant loudspeakers. And they had invented this three-channel uh, uh, system of reproduction. Um, and so, again, this was one of those kinds of demonstrations that uh, brought this you know, idea of stereo sound and reproduction into the public domain. And then, you know, you had artists and scientists who were then experimenting this with this as a kind of artistic medium. You know, what happens to music when it can be reproduced in this way? And that was a, you know, real interest of uh, Leopold Stokowski's, but also of artists like Varez, you know, who had been dreaming, let's say, of a spatial music since uh, much before this, but didn't have the technologies with which to produce that. So for me, the Bell Telephone Laboratories experiments, they're really interesting in bringing together the worlds of art and science, which then in the 20th century really is, that's a very important merger in the realm of music, because once you have these kinds of musical scientific collaborations and those boundaries are blurred, you know, people are asking then different kinds of questions also about, you know, the sensation of music, the feeling, what happens when you're hearing it projected through multiple loudspeakers, what happens to the emotional quality of the music. And some of their experiments after this were also speaking to that. And it was fascinating for me that they were then also doing this in concert halls. So Carnegie Hall was another famous demonstration where they were doing reproductions of stereophonic music, stereophonically recorded. But it was, again, a kind of experience of sound and music that people were unfamiliar with. It lo looks, when we look at the documents that they were also going a little bit nuts with like volume. It was very loud. People were, you know, uh, kicking, uh, looked as if they'd been kicked, you know, uh, making sounds like a hyena, somebody says. So, you know, um, that they were kind of these extreme sensations, you know, of sound as well. They were uh, experimenting with that in the concert hall. So, yeah, for me, that was a interesting moment, again, to kind of try to explode where do these musical scientific collaborations come from? And that the stereo sound project was part of that project. Great. Yeah. Thank you. And, and if kind of this sense of, um, I don't know, aesthesis or kind of, yeah, aesthetic response to these sound production technologies was thematized in, in that chapter. Um, the, the fifth chapter, which follows kind of 
points to some of the scientific research that if we like undergirded the results that were um, applied in these kind of more spectacular demonstrations. You mentioned Harvey Fletcher and in this fifth chapter, you discuss some of the places that this kind of, I mean, well established at this point, but um, still, you know, much to be developed um, uh, relating to field called uh, psychoacoustics was kind of um, being carried out. And so this is the topic of, of the fifth chapter. And the term psychoacoustics itself strongly suggests the replacement of kind of sound as such as being the object of study um, of acoustics uh, and replacing that with um, a kind of active or cognitive listening subject whose capacity as a listener or a hearer is modeled by their ability to process or analyze um, this data, this kind of more cognitive focus um, that we, we alluded to already. Um, and the center of this chapter is a figure who both drew on and carried out his own psychoacoustic research and in doing so made his way from the live entertainment sector through to the kind of now infamous Muzak Corporation and then finally into defense research. Um, and what I like about this chapter is that it complicates kind of more reductive notions about the flow of kind of technology from the military to the entertainment industry. Um, this chapter, in fact, suggests that a dominant ideology of control pervaded the use of sound in the theater and indeed on the, the factory floor before the same technology was ultimately deployed in theaters of war. So to kind of make that more concrete, could you tell our listeners about the um, sometimes dubious achievements of this figure, Harold Burris Meyer? Sure. And what his career tells us about the kind of freedom or the porousness of uh, disciplinary boundaries kind of in and around World War II? Sure. Um, Harold Burris Meyer, he, again, he's one of these fascinating historical figures that I think... Um, is a little bit under-recognized in histories of spatial sound and audio, um, as well as just uh, spatial sensibilities with regard to sound. He was a drama instructor, uh, a dramaturge, and uh, um, a technician at the Stevens Institute of Technology in New Jersey. And his initial interest in sound and what he called sound control was to be able to modernize the acoustic apparatus of the theater. So he was saying, you know, that the theater is really stuck in the 15th, 16th centuries because um, it's really just through the human voice um, and then these kind of mechanical props that they do sound effects in the theaters. In theaters, Why aren't they using things like multi-channel sound reproducing systems and also having more ways of controlling the acoustical environment of the theater, the acoustics of the theater. So both using electrical technologies as well as things like acoustical paneling or, you know, things like that. So he wants to modernize theater sound. So he starts this, what he calls the group of, on sound control at the Stevens Institute of Technology at SIT. And they're initially doing theater experiments in which they, for example, you know, make it sounds like make it sound like the witches in Macbeth are flying above the heads of the audience. And that again, it's a new and uh, important kind of um, sensation to have in the theater. He's also approaching it from that perspective of sonic realism. Uh, how, how how can you suspend disbelief? And that's the initial way in which they're um, experimenting. But then he notices, you know, that there are these quite strong emotional responses to this kind of sound control and these kinds of spatial sound effects. And he wants to then systematically study those emotional and even physiological responses to sound. 
So he starts doing these quite wild um, experiments with things like infrasound, uh, sound which is beneath the range of human hearing, um, sending infrasonic signals, for example, through loudspeakers that are embedded then underneath the theater floor in order to almost produce a sense of dread in the mm -hmm. audience before they can hear the sound. And then, you know, bringing that sound up to an audible frequency and then you can hear the drumming, for example. But before you can hear it, you can feel it. Mm -hmm. And so he's, you know, fascinated. He's doing things like this. Now, of course, this is a time in which this kind of idea of infrasound is, is not really known. And people are worried about what this can mean. Can you then send, you know, secret messages into people's heads? <laughs> you know, what would happen if a fascist um, government got a hold of these kinds of sound technologies and they're able to, you know, infiltrate people's minds? <laughs> so you know, his experiments actually raised those kinds of questions, just his theater experiments. But then he was recruited into Muzak, the Muzak Corporation, which was actually founded by George Owen Squire, who was the head of the U.S. Signal Corps, the body, the U.S. military body that was in charge of things like communication technologies during the First World War. And we're familiar with music now. It's the kind of canned music, you know, corporation. It's sending music into mm, factory floors in order to regulate uh, people's um, physiologies, in effect, and, you know, make people essentially less bored and more productive. <laughs> so this was one of, you know, their missions is, you know, how can we use music, in a sense, almost to regulate people's biorhythms? Um, so they were doing those experiments. He, he became the vice president of Muzak in the late 1930s. And then he was recruited to do this kind of psychoacoustic research for the U.S. military. He was recruited by the National Defense Research Committee. And they started doing these then even more, you know, interesting and I think problematic and controversial uh, um, experiments, not only on musical behaviorism, like they were doing in Muzak. So having music, which is almost designed to, to produce a certain kind of behavior in the listener or pr produce a certain kind of emotional response. But how can you then really use sound uh, as an attack, you know, as a weapon? Um, can you, or in order to almost like brainwash listeners. So they were doing experiments around that. They were doing experiments in which they were testing the fitness of soldiers, um, by, for example, exposing them to, you know, horrific, loud <laughs> and frightening sounds and seeing how they would react. Um, so the kind of ethical uh, scope of these experiments is, is, as you said, you know, quite dubious. Um, but it also, as you said, shows a different um, flow. Uh, it's not only that there are these military technologies like those sound locators that then become figured in the stereo sound recording technologies and reproduction technologies like Oscar the dummy head. But there's a way in which theater sound and sound effects and this kind of spectacular use of sound and emotional use of sound is then going into the military context. And they actually were doing things like having planes, this project, which was called the Project Poly, in which they were projecting very high volume uh, sounds out of airplanes um, in order to uh, basically capture in their, this is in their, you know, mind, um, the 
souls of um, Japanese prisoners of war. So they were actually doing this kind of um, experiment in the Second World War, in, in which they were projecting Japanese songs, things that would be familiar, but then saying, you know, this is what the U.S. military kind of wants you to do. <laughs> um, so it was, it was again, these experiments um, are going, in this case, from the theater domain to the theaters of war. Thank you. Yeah, um, I, I think it's as good a moment as any actually coming up into the sixth chapter to kind of um, zoom out a little bit to take in the arc of the book so far. Um, and, and we've already touched on it, like the ethical dimension to kind of teasing out these sound space relationships is ever present in your discussion of acoustic defense and the psychoacoustic research that we just talked about, but it, not always at the surface. But I read chapter six as a kind of inflection point in the book precisely because it makes this theme quite explicit. Uh, in this chapter, you argue that for kind of the history of sound and sound installation art in particular um, to be critically meaningful, it needs to be, quote, founded on conceptions of space that account for social and political geographies as well as physical ones, end quote. Um, and that's a lesson I think that applies not just to the study of sound art, but maybe to the study of aesthesis more generally in sound. And here, the gambit offered by Stereophonica, your book becomes apparent, at least to me, if sound studies and the history of sound art reckons with its kind of current inheritance of sonic space as largely empirical, Cartesian, or geometric, and instead becomes more open to more generously understood notions of space, such as those developed, for example, by critical geographers, it will be all the richer for it. And, and my sense from reading this chapter, chapter six, is that your knowledge and experience of particular pieces of spatial music and sound installation art drove this point home for you. So uh, could you share some of those artworks you've discussed and why you've chosen them in this chapter to illustrate this kind of latent but maybe untapped potential in sound studies, should it choose to engage more deeply with um, urban studies and, I suppose, geography more generally? Absolutely. So uh, in chapter six, I'm tracing what I frame as a shift from a poetics of space in music and sound art to a politics of space in those domains. So in those early experiments around spatial music uh, with using electroacoustic technologies, we can think of again artists like Varez or maybe Zanakis, um, who was also projecting his work over those hundreds of loudspeakers at the Phillips Pavilion in 1958. You know, they had a very kind of geometrical, geometric and mathematical conception of sound and space. So they were talking about locating sound objects in three-dimensional space and using terms from geometry, from Euclidean geometry and Cartesian kind of conceptions of space uh, in doing that. So uh, planes and angles of sound masses what I found was very interesting is that then around the same time in the late 1950s, early 1960s, there's also at the same time this um, idea of social space and political space. You can find that in the writings of philosophers like Henri Lefebvre, the Situationists, Guy Debord, um, Guy Debord, and they're looking much more at you know the production, the social production of space. And I, I try to trace that kind of shift also in the domain of music and sound art. And so then I'm looking at these sound installation works or 
performance sound works that are spatial or site-specific, and that really have an almost explicit kind of social or political dimension. And two two of the examples that I focus on, one of them is a uh, one of those artists is a Finnish artist called Heidi Fast, and she was doing what I found were quite sensitive, beautiful works in which, for example, she invited everyone who lived in an apartment building to vocalize with her through the staircases and the architecture of that building or and even going in and out of each other's apartments. And this was for her a kind of political action, a social action. It's kind of, you know, disrupting the normal, let's say, uses of those spaces and uh, relationships between people and making a kind of collective sound and, you know, vocalizing, but not for the purpose of, say, a nationalistic purpose or a patriotic purpose, or, you know, it's this very exploratory kind of gesture. And, and she conceives of that also as a kind of political gesture, but she says by making these very small displacements. Um, and then I have another example who is, a, you know, very different context, um, who is Rebecca Belmore. She is an indigenous Canadian artist. Um, she's Anishinaabe, and she created this I think really um, incredible work called Ayumi Awach Omama Moan, which is translated in English as speaking to their mother. And this was a, a giant megaphone that she installed in different sites, sometimes remote locations in Canada. And it stemmed from uh, the Oka crisis, which was a very um, difficult crisis uh, in Quebec in 1991, where the Quebec government wanted to build a kind of golf resort over these native sacred burial grounds um, in the town of Oka. And so what she was doing with this giant megaphone, she was inviting people, native speakers specifically, to what she said, speak to their mother, uh, so to speak to their land. And for me, this was a very interesting um, project of using this kind of what we associate with, a, you know, sound reproduction uh, or, you know, broadcasting projection device, the megaphone. But in this very uh, specific for a very specific purpose, which was to really then recognize the land actually as almost like a person Um you know, this comes from her and those indigenous communities' philosophies about uh, what the land is. And I think that gesture of, you know, inviting people to speak to the land directly is a very powerful one because it shifts that place of politics from that, you know, those uh, centers of power in which they typically happen and out of those kind of media spaces and the spaces of, uh, let's say, Canadian politics into this very different space um, and also gives people uh, an opportunity to express, you know, their political um, sensibilities, this injustice, which is happening in a way um, that that doesn't normally happen. So uh, I'm looking at those kinds of works. And I, I think this is then a very interesting shift that you find from the more Euclidean Cartesian conceptions of sound space to these sonic, social, political spaces. Yeah. And that relationship 
of kind of opposition is underscored almost by the kind of almost visual similarity between that uh, last sound art piece that you mentioned and uh, some of the other images of these like gigantic parabolic imaging uh, sound imaging devices you know that sense of a, a kind of a true kind of counterpunch or counter tendency is there um so uh, as we get towards the end of the book um we're moving in and kind of deepening that sense of sound as a well the relationship of sound and space as a, a social responsibility and listeners might be familiar with the work of R. Murray Schaefer, uh, a researcher who became well known for popularizing the notion soundscape, which kind of by analogy, again, another visual analogy with landscape captures the idea that a total set of sounds in our environment can be decomposed into its kind of distinctive sonographic components, kind of by analogy with topography. And as you note in the book, uh, Schaefer led research that produced maps and diagrams that attempt to visualize the noises and sounds heard, it, heard and, and recorded by his field researchers. These maps could attest to distinctive features of the local soundscape, but also, in a kind of literal way, make visible the sonic impact of uh, phenomena like industrialization, urbanization, and globalization. But uh, Schaefer's maps were far from the first attempt to graphically denote the sonic effects of these various kind of social processes. And in this chapter, you take the reader through various 20th century techniques for recording and then re-representing or um, making visible urban noise and sound. So um, could you just tell us a little bit about what kinds of technologies have been used to achieve this goal over time and to what political or artistic ends can and have these sound and noise mapping techniques being put? Absolutely. So um, as you said, in this chapter, I'm looking at visual representations of what is called soundscape, a sonic environment. And R. Murray Schaefer and the World Soundscape Project, I think, are very interesting because, well, he doesn't invent that term, but he popularizes it. And they're doing these, you know, quite rigorous studies of sonic environments coming out of the late 1960s, early 1970s, new consciousness around noise pollution. They want to track the effects of noise pollution, specifically in cities. Um, and so they want to be able to represent uh, those sound environments in a visual language. So kind of almost like a sound map that they draw or a noise map that they draw. But, um, you know, the noise maps, for example, are showing noise levels of a site. Sound maps are showing qualitative aspects of that um, sound environment. So what kinds of sounds are there? There's bird sounds, jet sounds, for example. So they're using different kinds of visual mapping techniques to depict and represent sound. But I also go back earlier into the 20th century, looking at things like decibel tables and charts. Um, uh, again, Bell Telephone Laboratories engineers were involved in things like noise mapping in New York City um, and showing then where all these new kinds of noises are and the new noise levels in this period of the 1930s where there is increasing industrialization and urbanization and suddenly much more noise uh, and cities are wanting to mitigate noise. But you can, uh, to bring it into the contemporary context, I'll just give two examples. Um, so there is a project in New York City called Sonic, the Sounds of New York City. And what they're doing is now they're doing this in this kind of real time smart city so way using vast uh, amounts of data. They're putting microphones all over New York City and they're recording snippets of sound uh, 10 seconds, I don't know, every, every 30 seconds or maybe once a minute. And they're then uh, getting the noise levels and they're also algorithmically using you know, machine listening 
determining what that sound is. So they have now a lot of data um, on that sound. And you can also participate in that project as a listener. You can also take noise level readings on your phone. You can kind of report on noise. So that is a kind of, they're producing also then noise maps. And noise maps are important. Actually, every city, for example, in Europe of a certain size is governed by the European um, Commission End Directive, the Environmental Noise Directive, to produce a noise map every so often. And that shows where the noisy you know, spots of that city are. And then they have to come up with things like um, action plans, for example, creating quiet spaces in that city or mitigating noise in some other way. So noise maps are actually quite um, important in terms of governance, uh, municipal, and as well as federal um, you know, governance of noise environments. But I also want to look at then a different kind of mapping technology, which are sound maps. And now we have a proliferation of online sound maps in which people are uploading field recordings, recordings of um, different sites. For example, in a city, there's a beautiful project called the Montreal Sound Map, and you can just upload a field recording of Montreal. And then it becomes a kind of archive, sonic archive of that city. And what I wanted to say with this um, chapter was look at these different forms of mappings. What, how do they imagine the person, you know, who is kind of being um, implicitly or explicitly kind of imagined through this mapping technique? So um, in a project like Sonic, the acoustic citizen is almost like an informant. They are informing on reporting on noise, almost like a civic duty. And then in a project like Montreal um, Sound Map, the acoustic citizen is an explorer, is a listener, is part of an acoustic community, is maybe an acoustic ecologist thinking about the health of sonic environments, is maybe an archivist. So, um, yeah, I, I wanted to look at those kinds of mappings. And as you said, they can have um, real social and political dimensions as well. Um, and for me, what was also important about it is whereas noise maps are like the official mappings of sonic environments, of cities, especially, you also have many of these unofficial alternative mappings that give us really different kinds of insights um, into the, you know, sonic environments that we inhabit and live in. Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, if those sound maps and, and noise maps formalize human experience in a kind of, uh, kind of objective or quasi-objective visual way, um, the activity you describe in the very final chapter of the book is in some ways kind of um, informal and deeply subjective. And the final chapter of your book, um, for me, I mean, it's kind of obvious in, in a lot of ways, it's the most personal um, in that it draws in part on your own experience of the city of Beirut during a visit there in 2018. And for me, this chapter is a testament to how the wide-reaching study of sound technology, of theater, sound engineering, sound art, sonic mapping, everything that we've talked about so far, kind of informed the investigation through sound of an urban geography that was, in this case, repeatedly reshaped by civil war, state violence, mass migration by refugees, and, and more lately, corruption. And while it seems kind of at first pass that in the building sites of Beirut, we're quite a bit away from the world of um, binaural technologies like stethoscopes and uh, pseudoscopes and um, uh, pseudophones and the flashy golden age technical demos of the Bell Labs, it's the fact that these histories converge in the biography of the individual research, in this case you, through whom 
in turn, any psychogeographic experience of a city is mediated. And my last question about this book then kind of commensurately is a more personal one. Um, it's an invitation to reflect on how your individual training as a musician and historian of both sound art and sound technology impacted the things that you saw and more crucially heard during your visit to the Lebanon. And specifically, what stereophonic counter tendencies were you able to detect in the last decade or so of artistic um, interventions in Beirut that perhaps you wouldn't have spotted if it weren't for this kind of deep investment in both the kind of musical and, and sound formation that you have, but also your your study of technology? Thank you so much, Eamon, for this question. Um, I know that some readers, when they read this book, they're going to think, wait, how did we get from, you know, pseudophones in the 19th century and theatrophones to sonic urbanism in Beirut? <laughs> it seems like a, you know, unlikely trajectory. Um, but what happened as I was writing this book, I wanted initially, I thought I would write a much more general um, uh do a general study for the eighth chapter on different approaches to sonic urbanism, which I think is a very important new kind of shift in thinking about sound. Um, really, you know, what is sonic urban practice? What kinds of things can this entail? We have so many things like urban sound art festivals, things are happening in cities um, and that engage city spaces in specific ways. Um, and when I went to Beirut, uh, that was in the context of a project in which I was really thinking about sound art in post-conflict cities, because I think urban sound art, I used to live in Belfast for eight years, and I was noticing there how sound artists were doing things that really traversed some of those historical um, forms of segregation of space and those divisions of space by using this medium of sound, which is invisible, which you can't see, and which you can then you know, use in ways to bridge spaces that might not be bridged otherwise. And so I went to Beirut for that reason. And after I went, I really changed, uh, it really changed my thinking. And I really wanted to then focus on that, on Beirut as a case, as a specific case study of sonic urbanism, and not just as a kind of place where art is happening and where you can, you know, uh, see these fascinating works of sound art in Beirut, but almost like these works of sound art were revealing things about the city, which would be difficult to understand or know otherwise. Beirut is a city in which these local versus national versus transnational um, conflicts and interests are played out in a very violent way. You know, we have, a, we had, a, I, I was born in Lebanon during the civil war. I was born in Beirut. Um, but all of those different kinds of interests that come to bear on a city like that um, can be very difficult to trace and also very difficult for the inhabitants, the residents of that city to uh, understand. And what I saw was sound artists um, and different kinds of artists engaging this dimension of these complex forces as they impact on a city through sound. So one of the... Um, examples that I give for me is just a really, again, a tr transformational, I think, work by a, she's a sonographer called Natalie Harb. And what she did was 
during the garbage crisis in Beirut. So Beirut has had many, uh, Lebanon has had many, many different problems with governance. And people will say that there is an ineffective and incompetent, basically, um, government there and successive, you know, governments and that this kind of power uh, being located in these elite hands uh, really has been um, very damaging for the city. The garbage crisis was one example of that. Basically, they couldn't come to an agreement on removing garbage. So the garbage was building up in Beirut and it was it stank in the city. And she was looking at that, but also noise, noise pollution. So there was overstimulation of um, senses, okay, whether it's the smell or the um, hearing. There is very, very, Beirut is a very loud city. If you've never been to a city that loud, it's startling and shocking when you first go, you know, and the sounds start very early in the morning with construction sounds happening everywhere and then traffic noise. Um, and it's at the level where it does cause hearing damage and not everyone can escape that. So what she said was, you know, this noise pollution, it's affecting different communities in different ways. She, as maybe somebody more from a middle-class background, can escape that by going somewhere else. She doesn't have to work on the street. She doesn't have to work in a construction site where she's exposed to these elements. Mm -hmm. So she created this incredible work, I think, called The Silent Room, in which it was a pink structure, which really then stands out from the, you know, colors in which it's uh, of the city a two-story temporary architecture that she erected in a parking lot at the edge of two low-income neighborhoods in a highway. And with this group of acousticians, um, she put acoustical paneling. They treated the interior of that site, uh, of that space, so that it was no longer this 80, 85 decibel you know, levels that you're sometimes being exposed to in Beirut, but 30 decibels. But then they also had a sound installation in there, which was sounds of the city um, captured at the quietest moments of the city at night. So things like the muezzin, the prayers, which are being, you know, sung, but quite softly, or um, the hums of the electrical generators. And for me, this was a really interesting gesture of showing Beirutis, and it was a freely accessible space, you know, giving them a kind of almost like a new imagined possibility of what their city could be. And also then drawing attention to the kind of unevenness of noise and the kind of injustice then, social injustice around noise. And also the politics of noise. Who is, you know, exposed to noise? Who do people think is okay for them to be exposed to noise? Most construction workers in Beirut are refugees from Syria, and they're exposed to, you know, their hearing will be damaged if not destroyed. Um, because there's very little regulation of that. So this is, you know, touching on all of those things. And it's also revealing something about, you know, what is happening there, the decisions that were taken or not taken, um, who is protected and not protected. So for me, the examples that I use in Beirut or draw on in Beirut, they're trying to kind of draw attention to things that are happening, you know, in the city through this medium of sound and sound art and sonic urbanism. Um, and I think in in a way that, again, reveals almost forensically aspects of a city that we might not be able to understand, experience, sense, or, you know, they concretize these in these forms. So, uh, yeah, I was very inspired by those artists. Sure. And I mean, those 
the intervention you just described, it, I mean, it is a technological one at base, right? That that ties together sound and space mm. in this kind of intimate way that we've kind of traced through throughout the journey of the book. And so, um, yeah, just uh, my own reflection on that final chapter is that the sense of having accumulated all these kind of varied case studies going back to the acoustic defense, there were many, many kind of echoes and resonances with, for example, aerial warfare, which obviously, you know, hugely affected um, Lebanon. But in any case, there are productive and like extremely provocative connections to be made as we we kind of go from the um, pre-20th century right into the kind of vision for 20th century, 21st century in, in Beirut. Well, um, Gassi, I've taken up quite a bit of your time and I'm really appreciative of that. Um, I really enjoyed the chance to chat about the book with you today. Um, it's exciting as it's uh, as of the time of recording. Anyway, it's uh, just out. Um, I think it's a book that will be well received and read with interest among a bunch of communities. So um, thank you for taking the time to share um, just kind of uh, the tip of the iceberg of what's there in the book, because we didn't talk about absolutely everything it would be impossible to do so. Um, before I do let you go, though, I'd like to ask you um, to let our listeners know kind of what you're working on now. Um, I suspect that there is more work in this vein um, to come, um, uh, specifically on sonic urbanisms. Um, and where should they look out for that work next? Thank you so much, Eamon. Thank you for these really excellent questions, your in-depth reading and engagement with the book. Thank you also for tolerating my somewhat long answers. <laughs> and um, I guess it covers a lot of ground and, um, you know, hoping to kind of illustrate that um in a way that might make sense for listeners. So I, I really appreciate this opportunity. Um, yeah, right now I'm working on a project called Son Cities, Sonorous Cities Towards a Sonic Urbanism. This is funded by the European Research Council and it's bringing together architects, urban planners, urban sociologists, sonic theorists, sonic artists to really look at kind of methods that go between and across sound art, sound studies, and then architecture and urban design, again, with this kind of socially conscious um, perspective. So if people are interested in that, you can check out sonscities.com, S-O-N, sonscities.com. And then one other, you know, small project that I'll mention is called Scoring the City, which um was quite a joy of a project that I uh, did with an organization called Teatra Mundi and a partner there called John Bingham Hall, who's an urbanist as well as a musician. And we we actually went to Beirut together. That was where part of this came from. But what we did was we invited architects and planners and designers to look at things like graphic scores, verbal scores, experimental scores in music. Uh, so things like Cornelius Cardew's treatise, those beautiful, you know, drawn scores, and invite them to create an urban score for a specific site and in relation to some kind of prompt. So maybe that site and our investigation of that site together with them, we held these workshops in different cities, uh, would be focused on maybe something like memory and that site or uh, displacement in that site. And so um, a number of them made these beautiful scores, urban scores that are, you know, um, not the kind of architectural blueprint, which is the one-to-one normally relationship, you execute the architect's ideas, but these are almost like performative scores. They invite performance, they invite improvisation, and it's an experiment. It's an experiment that's saying, you know, what would happen in urban design if there was this more kind of openness in terms of the notation methods, the the design methods. Anyway, if people are interested in that, just go to scoring.city and you can check out those scores. 
Sounds wonderful. Thank you very much again, Gassia. I, I want to thank you just for coming on the show one more, one final time. Um, and yeah, just given everything that we're going through, thanks for sharing your time. And I, I'm quite curious to learn myself the results of that project. So um, thanks so much. I'll keep an eye out for it and I hope the listeners do. So uh, take care. Thank you very much and stay well. Thank you. You too.